In Romans 4, Paul uses Abraham as the illustration for the principle of justification by faith. We've been talking about that for several weeks now. After validating his point, in other words, that justification is not by works, it's by faith, after validating his point in Romans 3, 21 through 31, Paul then uses the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, Genesis 15.6, to help make his point. He proposes Abraham as an illustration or model of the principle. He says, and, and he quotes Moses, says and says, Abraham and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. If anybody that has ever lived could have been credited, could have been justified by works. People would have, at least in Paul's day, said it was Abraham. But Paul's going to say, even Abraham, good as he was, wonderful as he was, wasn't justified by works. Well, the last few weeks we've been looking at these three areas. Paul is first going to make the negative side of the case. And most New Testament scholars agree, the rest of chapter 4 is an exposition on verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Paul is giving... He's writing, if you will, a commentary on that one verse. And this is a neat commentary because it's a divinely inspired commentary as opposed to the rest which we, we wouldn't put in the same classification as this. So Paul is going to say in verses 4 through 8 that justification is not by good works and it's not by faith plus works. Most of the world that would consider themselves to be Christian believes either that they're justified by their works or they're justified by faith plus works. So don't let that one slide by without at least some serious thought. If you've traveled the world or if you've spoken to people next door, you'll find that most people are attempting to be right before God either by their works or some would say by their faith plus their works. And Paul says, no, it's not by that. It's also not by circumcision. We studied that in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And in verses 13 through 16, we'll see that it's not by keeping the law. In verses 17 through 22, Paul will then expound upon how Abraham was justified. So he says how he wasn't, not by works, not by faith plus works, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. And then he'll tell you how he was justified. We studied the first two of the negatives. And we've introduced the third negative, not by keeping the law, over the last two weeks. Putting us, I think, in a position to appreciate more fully the exposition that we'll now have in the, in the time that we have left tonight in verses 13 through 16. Read along with me these verses. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be an heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation or transgression. In verse 16, what I, a verse that I believe is a summary statement of the verses that, of the truth that he's taught in the three verses prior. For it is, for this is, I'm sorry, for this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
Before we get into verse 13, think of verse 16 again. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. Can you think of any other well-known verse where Paul says almost essentially the same thing? I can. Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. There was a time when I was... That hasn't happened lately. I don't know why. Maybe God thinks I can't handle it or, or Satan's moving the people other other places, but... Maybe I'm just not home enough, but I don't get to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses as much as I used to or, frankly, would like to. Because I figured it was a witnessing opportunity. I invited them in. Now, I'm not recommending that for everyone. If you don't feel comfortable, if you're a woman at home by yourself, I mean, you use your sense. But I invited them in because I feel like it was somebody that needed witnessing to, even though they thought they were witnessing to me. And a verse that, that I bring up with them almost every time now is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Because guess what? They forgot to tell them about that one in the training session of how to go and argue with people. Because that's essentially what some of the training sessions are about. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works. It's not of yourself. Not of works lest any man should boast. And Paul says it here too in Romans chapter 4 verse 16. So if you're, if you're looking for verses that you can help people with that are of that persuasion and think that salvation is by faith plus works, and there are others, by the way, that are of that persuasion, many Roman Catholics feel that way too. In fact, I think if they would look closely at the doctrines from Rome, that's not Romans, but the church at Rome, they would, you would see that that is indeed what would come down from the top. Ephesians 2.8.9 and Ephesians 4.16 would be verses that you could go to if it matters. Now, sometimes you'll find it doesn't matter when you're speaking, when you're discussing theology with somebody. It doesn't really matter what verses you have, and that's tragic. But if it matters, keep those in mind. Salvation is based upon divine promise, which is appropriated through faith, not keeping the law. In these verses, Paul tells us, salvation is based upon divine promise, which is appropriated through faith, not keeping the law. In verse 13 he says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The idea of promise is one of the great unifying themes used by the biblical writers themselves to integrate the message and the deeds of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Biblical scholars for centuries have been looking for that unifying theme that runs all the way through Scripture. I, I believe that the sovereignty of God and the God's right to rule happens to be a unifying, if not the unifying theme that runs all the way through Scripture. But another unifying theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is the unifying theme of the promise. The promise was first given in Genesis 3.15 as part of the oracle against the serpent. Remember there was an oracle against the serpent, an oracle against the woman, and an oracle against the man after the fall. The, there's actually, it's, it's improper to call them the curses against the serpent, the woman, and the man. Actually only two things were cursed. You remember what they were? If you look specifically, the serpent was cursed and the land was cursed. There were oracles that were given against the rest. But as part of the oracle against the serpent, God tells the serpent that, that a seed would come. This, the seed of the woman would come. And that seed of the woman is the seed form, if you will, of the promise. It's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And the scriptures say that, tell the serpent, you'll, you'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. And if you remember back to the film The Passion, if you saw it, that was a, a fairly um, good, I think, at least better than most. I would have put it at a different time of the movie, but we all have our ways we would have done that. Uh, but a great illustration of, a great visualization, rather, of that happening. 
Remember the serpent was slithering out about to, to strike our Lord and he very forcefully crushes its head. I think the crushing of the head probably happened chronologically a little bit later at the cross. But the point is the divine promise came in its seed or its earliest form back in Genesis 3.15. And then we move to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we find a man named Abraham is introduced. And then Abraham is given some specific promises, and we find out that it's through Abraham that these promises will be mediated. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse you, and in you, here's where the promise is mediated through Abraham. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As we go through the rest of the scripture, we see more and more information about the promise. We find that the promise is going to be mediated through uh, Jacob. I'm, I'm sorry, through Abraham, Isaac, and not Esau. Through, through uh, I'm sorry, Isaac and not Ishmael. Jacob and not Esau. And then through Judah and not the, one of the other brothers. And then finally, a person of the tribe of Judah, David. So the, the, the information about the promise, in, in one sense, is expanding, but the, the line of the Messiah is narrowing. But it's this promise doctrine that Paul refers to here in chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law. Well, what Paul is making clear is that the promise to Abraham came some 430 years before the law. We learned that in Galatians. And so the promise to Abraham couldn't be mediated by the fact that Abraham was to keep the law. It couldn't happen. Now, Paul is not referring to the promise that goes all... Well, he is referring, in a sense, to the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 15, but he's breaking in in the middle of it. The promise that came to Abraham, because why? This, past, this chapter is about Abraham. So he wouldn't go all the way back to Genesis. He breaks in here. The promise was obviously given before the instruction of the Mosaic Law, or as we labeled it last week, God's Law that was given to the people of Israel through his servant Moses, as it should be more properly understood. The promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, which, which indicated that he indeed would be the one to mediate this promise to all mankind. This promise is unconditional, as it is evidenced by Genesis 15. However, for the descendants of Abraham, this is key, for the descendants of Abraham to enjoy the same benefits of that promise that their father Abraham did, they have to exercise the same faith. <coughs> Today, many Jews believe that they're heirs to the promise. We could also call it heirs to eternal life, heirs to a relationship with God because of their physical relationship with Abraham. And that's a problem. And actually, that's pretty bold. It's pretty arrogant to think because I was born of two parents, that way that I have a right relationship with God, and if you weren't, you don't. God doesn't work that way. In order to share the blessing, you have to share the faith. You have to share it in the same faith that Abraham had, and that's open to you whether you're Jew or Gentile. As the Jews saw it, the promise made to Abraham was to be realized through obedience to the Mosaic Law. The rabbis even maintained that long before the law was, uh, was adopted and, and given from Sinai, Abraham had already 
had a thorough knowledge of it and obeyed it in all its details. In other words, even though Abraham didn't have the law, Abraham obeyed the law, even before the law was given. And we look at what Paul says, and Paul asserts that the promise was given to Abraham at a time when he had already exercised faith in God. And that it was a result of this faith that righteousness had been reckoned or credited to him. It wasn't because he kept the law. Whether he knew it ahead of time or not is Paul's point. We could, we could say the law didn't come for 430 years and they would say it didn't matter, Abraham knew it ahead of time. Well, Paul said even if he knew it ahead of time, that's not what Moses said got him justified. Works or merit had nothing to do with the promise or its fulfillment, whether it's in Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 12.1-3. Obedience to the law was not in the picture for the promise to Abraham had made, been made many years before the law had been given. I want you to note these words. Abraham or his seed received the promise that he would be heir of the world. That is, that as a gift from God, he would obtain the world. But that's a little nebulous. We might wonder what that means. First of all, we need to point out that God's promise to Abraham contained these items. First, a title to the land of Canaan. In discussions about who owns, who has a right to the land of Palestine, biblically, there's no question that it belongs to the Jew. That's Genesis 12, 7, 13, 14, 15, and 17. Chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 17, verse 8. It's not just mentioned in one place. The Jew has a right to Canaan or Palestine. Second, the assurance that his seed would be like the dust of the earth. And it has been. You saw that happen. They went down to Egypt with just a few people and came out with two million. And the book of Exodus shows us that the promise of an abundant prosperity was realized. And then the book of Joshua shows us that the land of Canaan became the possession of Abraham's descendants. Now, they never possessed all of it that they will. But they possessed a great deal of it, particularly in David's time. And the third thing is that the guarantee that in Abraham's seed all the families of the earth will be blessed, that's also a subject Paul brought up in Galatians 3.16, states that in Christ the real seed... Genesis 3.15, all those who embrace him will be blessed, or all those who embrace him will receive eternal life. At the, end of, at the end of verse 13, it says it's not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, in the Greek language, this is a little bit uh, uh, busy or stilted. This means the righteousness resulting from faith is the proper way to understand that. Abraham to whom the righteousness of Christ was imputed, was the heir of the world. The same was and is true, of course, with respect to all those who share in Abraham's faith. That's Paul's point. Abraham didn't work for it. He trusted Yahweh for it. You don't need to work for it. You trust Yahweh. And if you are talking with people, which I hope you are, if you're willing to talk to people, whether it's people from the LDS, the Mormons, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses. And by the way, dear sweet people, a lot, of, a lot of times you'll find that your Mormon friends and your Jehovah's Witness friends will be nicer than you are. <laughs> and you know why? Because they feel like they got to, or they're going to hell. We know we're not, so we <laughs> let our hair down sometimes. Not that we ought, but unfortunately sometimes we do. 
I'm not saying they're not nice. I'm not saying they're not sincere. But I am saying they're sincerely wrong. But if you're going to ever get a hold of someone who's truly a friend and who will truly listen, you've got to have something to tell them. And to walk through Paul's argument and to, to really properly present it is devastating to the arguments of the Jehovah's Witnesses, to the Mormons, uh, to the... Uh, to the church at Rome, to the Roman Catholic Church, to the Orthodox Church in the East, and to many different sects. So it's really important. This is life and death stuff. I know sometimes you wonder what the application is. You know what the application to the first five chapters of Romans is? Life and death. That's what the application is. To be able to properly give someone the gospel is incredibly important. It's understandable that if instead those people who believe that strenuous efforts to obey the law and all its details would save them, they were, if they were right about that, then faith, which is the reliance for salvation not on ourself but on God, would lose its value. If, if those who teach that either faith or faith plus works is the way to heaven, then we have to honestly say, what value does faith have? Little or none. And that's what Paul is bringing out here. Also, on that basis, if it was keeping the law, no one would ever be saved. For the law demands perfection, which no sinner is able to achieve. Therefore, the promise that began all the way back in Genesis 3.15, moves all the way to John 3.16 in the New Testament and, and beyond, the promise would be rendered worthless. For under those circumstances, it could never be fulfilled. You see what Paul's saying? If the promise is realized through keeping the law, you've got to remember, the law itself says you've got to keep it perfectly, so the promise would be worthless, because nobody can do it. If I said I was going to give you a million dollars if I win the lottery, ever anybody said that to you? you know, I'm going to pay you back that money when I win the lottery. <laughs> That'd be nice. But you probably wouldn't take it real seriously, would you? You'd probably be polite. Oh, thanks. Great. Remember me. And you'd smile, but you would walk away not thinking much of that because the chances of winning the lottery are what, 1 in 56 million or more? I don't know what they are now. If I said, though, I was going to give you a million dollars, if you could walk through a solid concrete wall, the offer of the million dollars would be completely meaningless. And if somebody said that to me, I probably wouldn't even bother to act enthused. Wouldn't say thank you. I just look at you like, why'd you waste your breath saying something so silly? Something that had absolutely no meaning. Why would it have no meaning? Because it is an actual impossibility that that's going to happen, at least in this body. Not maybe in the resurrection body, but right now. In the resurrection body, I'm not going to care if you give me a million dollars or not. But the point is, if it's the same way with the promise of God. If the promise of God is realized through keeping the law, it's a meaningless promise. And God doesn't make meaningless promises. It, there, there would be no way in the world it could ever be realized. So Paul's saying, that's not the case. 
If it is the case that inheritance, and in, this, in Paul's terminology, inheritance here means receiving eternal life, is based upon adherence to the law, then there will be no heirs, because no fallen human being can adequately adhere to the law. And all that means is that faith is exercised in vain, and the promise will never be fulfilled. Now, there was one person who kept the law, but I said fallen human beings a minute ago. Jesus Christ kept the law, but he didn't keep it for justification. He didn't need it. He was already perfect. Paul, in this passage, as complicated as it may seem, is just asking the original readers, and he's asking us, to slow down, take a deep breath, and just think it through. All that he's saying here to the Jews of his time and even to the Gentiles, all that he said is clear from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not hidden. It's not in code. It's right there. All they had to do was slow down, think, and read it. Just think about it. It's amazing to me how far theology can be distorted when we neglect to carefully consider the Word of God. It's amazing to me how many people try to do theology apart from a careful consideration and a thorough study of the Word of God. Our systematic theology should be developed from our biblical theology. We should look at what Paul says in Romans. We should look at what John says in John. And we should pull, after we learn that, we should pull all of that out and then, then systematize that into a theology. But you know how it happens most of the time? Most of the time people come up with a theology. And then they go back into the Bible and look for a place where they can defend that theology. Oftentimes, pulling verses, ripping verses, if I may, completely from their context to validate their point. If you read any theology textbook, whether it's written by someone like a Ryrie who's a genius or somebody that just doesn't have any business writing a book at all, they'll both have their verses. Well, I was given a job one time or a task one time to go through and, and check the verses that were given as references to, to some a certain theological material that was going to be published on the Internet. You'd be surprised how many times the verse matched up not at all with what they were saying. So I would ask us too, let's slow down Let's take a deep breath. Let's carefully consider what the Word of God says. Let's read the Word of God. And then if our theology needs to be changed, let's change it. If it doesn't, let's stand with it. And act like it really is important. Because as we explained before the class began, that scriptural revelation tells us about God. And if we have a faulty view of scriptural revelation, we're going to have, guess what? Faulty view of God. And what good does that do us? Very little. Verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. For, the, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Now in verse 15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. This is another verse that is, is a parenthetical verse. And when Paul likes to do this, and I'm sure his original, for his original readers, this is something that they dealt with all the time in Greek writing. The Greeks did this a lot. For us, it kind of confuses. Because this one sentence doesn't seem to go along with the rest of the flow of Paul's thought, but it really does. It's a parenthetical thought. 
for the law brings about wrath. He's, he's saying the law is not going to bring about the reception of the inheritance that you're seeking. On the other hand, what does, what does the law bring about? The law brings about wrath. The first phrase of verse 15 shows that what, what the law does do. We've, we've been talking a lot about what the law doesn't do. But what does the law do? Though we studied ten, the tenfold purpose of the law recently, the reason I did that was so you see this is not the only one. But one of the things that the law did, remember, was to demonstrate that people needed a Savior, to show people what it took to walk in fellowship with the Holy God, to demonstrate what sin was. That's the one that Paul's bringing about here. The first phrase shows what the law does do. It produces wrath, as opposed to what it cannot do. It can't secure the inheritance. And again, the inheritance in this context is eternal life. The second clause, which is the more difficult, I think, for some, is also a parenthetical explanation of the reason why the law produces wrath. The phrase says, and where there is no law, neither is there any transgression. I know what some people have done with this. Let me make sure that you don't. Does that mean, does that mean if you're buzzing along the freeway, and you get pulled over by the police officer, and he says, you were going 110 and you said, well, I didn't realize the speed limit wasn't 110. I didn't see a sign. As a matter of fact, the sign back there, you go, look, it's been knocked down. Now, the police officer would probably tell you something along the lines of, if you had any sense at all, there's no state in the country where you can drive 110. So I don't care if the sign was knocked down or not. You knew that what you were doing was wrong. But especially if the police officer walks back by there and says, no, here's a sign that says speed limit 70 at which you have willfully transgressed. Then we can see that there would be wrath that would come from that. Now, the way Paul is using his terms here, I want to be careful. Um, Paul says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there any, in New American Standard says, violation. The Greek word there actually means transgression. And the way Paul uses this particular Greek word, parabasis, means to act contrary to established custom or law with the implication of intent to disobey. That's the key difference between this word and just a sin. You can commit a sin intentionally or unintentionally. But the word that Paul uses means that this is something likely that you did intentionally. So to go back to my illustration, the sign wasn't down for this guy. For this guy, the guy saw the sign that said 70 miles an hour, buzzed through it anyway. Now, in taking that and placing that into the context of Romans 4, the law, the Mosaic law, is that sign which every Jew saw. And so every Jew that passed by it knew what it was, didn't obey it, and now Paul says, hold on, you didn't obey it, it's going to bring you wrath. But before that sign was there, it would have just brought sin, and sometimes God punishes unintentional sin with wrath. Oftentimes he doesn't. But even if the law was not present, Romans 5 is going to tell us, there's still sin. But the, the specific word here talks about intentional sin. This is the way that it could be understood. Violation of law turns sins into the more serious offense of transgressions. Meriting God's wrath. Okay. And again, sometimes all sin is sin, but Paul is using some very technical words to separate out intentional sin from unintentional sin here. 
God gave the law to the Jews. The Jews have transgressed the law. So therefore, the law brought wrath to the Jews. It's really not that hard. What Paul's saying is, the law brought wrath. It didn't bring the inheritance. It brought wrath. Why? Because you knew it and you disobeyed it. That's all Paul's saying. It's a parenthetical statement. Don't allow it to throw you off in terms of understanding what's going on with the passage. Now finally, in verse 16, I believe verse 16 forms something of a summary statement, and it helps to draw this verse together as we close here in the last two to three minutes. For this reason, it is by faith that in order that the promise, uh, that, in or, and that it may be in accordance with grace, I'm sorry, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In line with what Paul has just now been saying about the manner in which God carries out his plan of salvation, namely, not insisting that in order to be saved, the sinner must earn his own entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but by providing a solution of faith in which grace is going to triumph, he says that the reason the promised salvation came by faith was so that it might be a matter of grace. If you work for it, it's not grace. If you work for it, it's not a gift. Do you see how Paul's tying all this in? Everything he started in chapter 1, he's tying it all together now. If the fulfillment of the promise had been dependent upon human effort so that salvation would have been the product of perfect obedience to the demands of God's law, this fulfillment would have never been attained. And if someone tells me or someone tells you tomorrow, I'm working my way to heaven, with all the love of Christ, you say, well, good luck, my friend, because you're never going to get there. What do you mean, I'm never going to get there? Because you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be able to work enough. Sometimes brutal honesty is the best policy. But brutal honesty given in love, please. Or you haven't fulfilled the mandate of Christ. Now that it's a matter of grace, hence a matter of God's eternal and effective plan, its realization in the lives of all of God's people is going to be assured. Everyone has a chance, whether you're of the law, meaning a Jew, or whether you're of the faith of Abraham, you could be a Jew or a Gentile. Okay, so now we've seen in the illustration of Abraham that his justification was not by works, not by faith plus works, it was not by circumcision, it was not by keeping the law. Next week, in verses 17 through 22, Paul will expound upon how Abraham was justified. We'll turn the coin over, and we'll see the positive side of the coin. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're so thankful that you have presented such a tight theological case. Uh, Father, help us not just to learn this case, but to apply this case. Not to try to reinvent the wheel when it comes to witnessing and evangelism, but to use what's here and Father, on a different note, I would pray that in our systematic theology we would, we would take it from the revelation that you've given us so that our theology may be accurate, that our theology may be effective as it points us to, to you, to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to your Holy Spirit. Now, Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. 